And I'm Nikolai. And this is the Foreign Influence Podcast. Thanks for listening today. We're just going to touch on a couple of quick things because they're big and they're in the news before we get to our interview with Amit Proti. He is an expert on urbanization and how cities can be resilient in the face of climate change. A really interesting discussion with Amit. Really, really cool about our future as an urban species. Yeah, and from the micro level of cities to the global impacts of things but first it's big and it's all happening yes just to get a note a couple of things since our last podcast the uk took the plunge they uh Woo-hoo. voted tremendously for the conservatives which means that brexit is basically going to happen so nikolai all Finally. folks in europe have to prepare yeah i guess we'll have to prepare get out the popcorn and watch it all burn <laughs> to the ground <laughs> and, and speaking of burning the ground impeachment is going to proceed yes uh by the time you're listening to this it's highly likely that the u.s house will have proceeded with impeaching donald trump only the third one wow. in the history of the u.s presidency uh but it's still unlikely that he will be thrown out of office by the senate i just have to say i support impeachment i think a line had to be drawn on presidential behavior uh and um yes now it's being drawn and um definitely know. another great popcorn moment yes yes more popcorn to be had but we uh, don't want to dwell on those issues today because they're going to change real fast and we're going to get into this issue with emit and uh anything more to say about the interview before we dive in here Oh, I, I, I thought it was really fascinating. We touched on so many issues as uh, so urbanization with regards to opportunity, economic development, climate change, uh, the threat of rising sea levels, and how to deal with those as, uh, as cities, the future of city-states versus uh, national governments. Really very, very interesting stuff. Fantastic stuff. So uh, let's not waste any more time. We'll get right into it. Let's do it. All right, so welcome, Amit. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bill. How are you? Yeah, great to have you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So you've uh, recently been part of a project called uh, 100 Resilient Cities, yep. uh, which was looking at what uh, cities need to do, well, to be resilient. So first of all, just tell us a little bit about the project and what this resilience concept is. Sure. So about um, six years ago, um, Rockefeller Foundation decided to look at urban resilience. Uh, partly, it was a reaction to what was happening in the U.S. Um, you know, you had Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, that became major disasters. And the foundations looked around and said, you know, how do we get cities to be better prepared to address these kinds of disasters, which seem to be growing uh, across the world? So what they did is they organized a global competition invited about 100 cities uh, across the world to say, look, um, the foundation will put in some funding and get cities to focus more on what is it that a city needs to do to be better prepared for when a natural hazard happens. So, you know, you have earthquakes that happen all the time, but they don't become disasters. You have floods that happen often, but not every flood is a disaster. So how do you as a city look at something, an event that happens, and be better prepared so it doesn't end up becoming a disaster. So the concept of resilience really comes from, um, you know, it comes from an ecological background. It's It comes from when you look at forests, forests burn down, so there's a disaster, you could say it's a disaster, or they burn down and then they grow back better. So it's part of their ability to adapt um, to Essentially, burning down and regenerating is an adaptive process. So the idea of resilience really comes from there. And then looking at in the city context, saying, how do cities, um, and when I say cities, it's a pretty broad uh, notion of city. It includes people, it includes institutions, includes government, private sector, etc. How do they not only be better prepared for natural events that may happen, but also if something happens, how do they essentially bounce back better? Uh, so that's where the co- notion of resiliency comes from. And the 100 Resilient Cities program was really looking at 100 cities, you know, included, including some of the best ones, like you have New York's and Sydney's and uh, Melbourne, um, including cities in India, including cities in China, etc., across the world, uh, to essentially help them think about how do they build resilience in their systems. And you worked on this project for a few years. Project, yeah. But 
but today you're yeah. here in a personal capacity. So yep. yeah, uh, I think you and I were having a chat and you said, you know, this is an interesting topic about urbanization and climate change and we'd yeah. love to hear the thoughts. So I thought, you know, let's, let's do this on more of a personal note than in an official capacity. Yeah. yeah. Well, Fantastic. and I think it's, it's, it's something that's more and more important, right? Since we're increasingly an urban species. Exactly. Uh, you know, I think uh, as we were speaking a bit earlier, 2009 is when the globe transitioned, right, from being mostly rural to now moving, becoming mm. mostly urban. Um, and it's an important phenomena for a variety of reasons. One, um, people, you know, in the past looked at cities as problems. Um, you know, a lot of governments, national governments particularly, looked at the whole notion of urbanization, creating these mega cities, you know, the concept of cities are a basket case of problems mm. and not looking at um, uh, not looking at cities from a more, um, I mean, looking at them more as problems rather than opportunities. Um, and that has begun to change partly because there's a correlation between an economic, economic growth in a country and the urbanization level of that country. Um, so when you look at cities, cities are often providing 70% of the GDP for a country. Yeah. yeah. So the concentration of activity, the concentration of industry. Um, so there's an economic argument for cities and urbanization, but there's also other arguments around, you know, you have your best hospitals there, you have a lot of your education there. So cities are end of the day draws for you know people to move to cities. And for about... 30, 40 years, government, national governments were not looking at urbanization and, and they were looking at more urbanization as a problem. Now for the last 30 years, there's a, especially in the developing part of the world, uh, there's a lot more focus on looking at urbanization as an opportunity. So governments have started to promote, uh, you know, looking at how do we create cities that are more sustainable, inclusive, um, you know, from an economic point of view, from an uh, you know social point of view, as well as an environmental point of view, how do you get cities to be better developed? Uh, partly because there's also a correlation to your economic development opportunity, and you know everybody wants economic opportunities, economic development. So urbanization has become uh, linked. It's always been there, but it, the link is now recognized more and more. Uh, and hence, governments are pushing in that direction so with policy, with incentives, etc., to promote urbanization. So the notion, the, the fact that now we are 50% urban is incredible, but it's also moving in a direction where about 67, 60 to 70% of the world will be urban in the next 30 years. Yeah, and I, I just want to emphasize that statistic yet again. So just 10 years ago, for the first, what, hundreds of thousands of years of our existence as a species, we were a rural species. And just 10 years ago, we became a, a majority urban species. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a profound transformation for humanity to go through. Uh, and as you just said, it's going higher, higher, higher. Yeah. So this, this is not a trend that's going to reverse. Um, you know, you were talking about how governments were looking at cities um, as a problem, what's an example of that? Where like there were national policies that said, "Ah, enough of the city thing. We need to bring I don't know the farms." I mean, what was the alternative? So, so you know, I guess China has one of the most. Um, you know, China controls who can live in a city and who cannot. They uh, have this yeah. Hoku system, which essentially is a permit, which says if you're an urban resident you get this permit and then this permit allows you social benefits you know hospital access education for your kids housing benefits so essentially it's a controlling mechanism uh, so by controlling the number of permits you're controlling the number of people moving into cities um, other countries have done it by promoting policies around rural development so not saying rural mm. development is not important but the argument, if you go back and look at India, for example, where because cities would have a lot of housing challenges, you know, we all see the slums in Bombay and mm -hmm. uh, across the Indian cities. National governments were like, we can't have more people moving into cities because they're creating these, you know, problems, the slums, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they focused more on creating rural opportunity. 
said let's put more focus on rural development as a way to reduce people moving into cities but that hasn't really worked very well so now it's starting to say okay we need to look at both rural and urban so th- those are the two examples i can uh, talk about yeah and it didn't work real well because of the draw of cities because that's where opportunity was exactly you yeah. know you you ask so there's there's several factors why people move to cities you know one it's the opportunity you have some of your best colleges for example and if you're thinking about your kid and you're saying i want to give them i didn't i may not have had those opportunities but i want to kid, give my kid those opportunities then of, often those best op- schools are located in cities maybe the first tier second tier cities but they are actually in urban centers you have medical issues and where are your some of your hospitals located in cities um you know your economic opportunity i want a good job and where are some of the best jobs located especially in the service industry in the creative industries are in cities so that's the pull factor right so people are drawn to cities because of these variety of reasons but there's also a push factor um you know especially like societies where the rural economy is not very stable you your agricultural dependent on agriculture and you have one famine or you know one one disaster and suddenly people have nothing to fall back on and then they go back go to cities because that's where they think the opportunities for you know that's where they might get a job to sustain to live essentially so there's this pull and push factors which brings people to uh, brings people to cities and now what's happened is that the amount of people living in cities just by natural um what's the word i'm looking for you know just by birth itself birth and death that ratio there's enough population in cities to continue to grow where migration is part of it but it's not the only factor that's contributing to growing urbanization so maybe we can get into some of the downsides of at least that exists at least today in this transitionary period we've recently become an urban species if i take the example of um france for example mm-hmm. uh, a country that i spent 10 years in there's many issues around urbanization mm-hmm. uh so paris france mm-hmm. perhaps the most well-known city in france is also one of the only big cities right it's much much bigger than the number 2 and number 3 mm-hmm. and so everything is drawn to paris mm-hmm. economic opportunities job opportunities and once you gradu- graduate you would move to paris mm-hmm. to start your career which has a giant impact on the urban pop the uh, the rural population which mm-hmm. still exists in terms of access to care mm-hmm. access to education mm-hmm. um so there is a strong feeling that this entire rural population is somehow stripped mm-hmm. from its quality of life and all of its opportunity mm-hmm. and that if you refuse to urbanize mm-hmm. you basically end up living in a no man's land where you cannot get access to doctors mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. cannot have access to quality education for your kids mm-hmm. and so you must move to the city mm-hmm. whereas a lot of individuals living in the city who are well off mm-hmm. um move out of the city because mm-hmm. they no longer need access to those opportunities mm-hmm. and they can easily commute mm-hmm. into the city if they need access to healthcare and stuff like that mm-hmm. um and another sort of related phenomenon is that just to give you a very concrete example i i i had a company in paris mm-hmm. and people that we sometimes relied on the most for our work could not afford to live in the city mm-hmm. because we did not pay them wages mm-hmm. which were actually um well above minimum wage mm-hmm. well above the average french monthly salary mm-hmm. but still they could not afford housing in the city mm-hmm. and they would have to live well not in a rural area but in a uh in an area that would take them that that would require them to travel like one and a half hours mm-hmm. uh each morning and one and a half hours mm-hmm. e- each evening to to get home mm-hmm. um you know how you, do you feel about these you could have paid them more <laughs> well no <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that's a real issue yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. so so you've touched upon a couple of different points here and i think one i do want to highlight the connectivity um uh, you know the, the 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 rural urban divide is more pro- pronounced and more profound when the urban is not connected to the rural right the the connectivity the transportation system for example what you just highlighted the urban 
the people living in Paris, you know, didn't want to live in Paris, had the opportunity to go live, you know, an hour and a half, two hours away, not from the, not the person who was working in Paris, but the person who actually could afford it. They can do that because of the Paris has good road systems, good, um, you know, uh, transportation systems, etc. And Europe, that you know, that's a good example because you have good connectivity in Europe. Across Europe is great. So part of the uh, part of the way to address this dichotomy between rural and urban is really to have better connections. So which allow people, which give people the option of saying, okay, the rural. Um, I mean, so peri-urban has become important from that point of view. Yeah, so the, there's a lot of discourse now in the peri-urban space. What's happening between the rural and the urban? Peri-urban. Peri-urban. P-E-R-I. Peri-urban. Yeah. Okay. It's sort of the it's the edges of the urban. That's not just the suburbs. So the suburbs used to be the older. I mean, it's still it's the same concept. Okay. But the new terminology for it is peri-urban. Made great uh, again. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everything's been made great again. Uh, um, so, so part of the way of, or one of the ways of reducing that divide is better connectivity, right? So places where there's more connections between cities and villages or cities and this thing, you have the opportunity to live in the village ah. and get, get your social care oh. in the city if you want. So you have the opportunity to have an option, right? That's, that's one point. The second one to your, on the affordable housing bit. So a lot of cities are facing this challenge of you know not having affordable housing. I was working at Seoul. They have the same issue. San Francisco, we all hear about it. Um, and that's a problem. Hong Kong. Hong Kong, right? Yeah. I mean, so, so that's the flip side of urbanization is where while you're creating economic opportunities in the center, in the urban core, and that's, in, that's raising your rents and raising you know, pe- what people are earning, it's also creating the haves and haves not, have nots, right? Um, and frankly, that's that's not been addressed very well by a lot of cities. You know, one, one of the cities that may have maybe has done that well is Singapore, mm. where the government has invested so much in public housing and has been able to control housing costs to some extent where you are able to buy a house in Singapore because the government has created yeah. this whole system to be able to for you to be able to do that. Not a whole lot of other countries have done that very well. Just, just to comment on what you yeah. just said about Singapore, I yeah. absolutely agree. I think it's an excellent example of a city solving this issue and addressing it effectively. I still find it interesting to note that socially, it's still very much more appreciated to live right downtown in a, in a condo mm. rather than up north in social housing. So one could argue that even though the connectivity is fantastic here, right? It's the yeah. most efficient, yeah. uh, I think, and the most perfect example of public transportation that I could cite in the world, right? Yeah. Even though the government incentives are in place and uh, um, cheap housing is completely accessible anywhere yeah. on the island, in the city, yeah. people still prefer to live downtown because that's where the opportunities are and that's where they have even easier access because all the access here is pretty much easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. even easier access to uh, all of these facilities and services. Yeah. Well, commuting time is real. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, yeah. A, yeah. It's a cost. But yeah. you know, the the argument there would be at least they have an option, right? right. I yeah. mean, they yes. have an option right. to an be option. within a forty-five minute. They have an option to buy a house because the government has made it affordable right. enough. They have a system that at least says, okay, you know, if you want to buy a house and if you want to live in your own house, you can. It's not that you can't. I mean, a lot of right. the other cities, the problem is you can't because the the options are not there. Um, well, and, and, and I think home ownership is a really big uh, issue here because for ex- to take the example of Paris, right? Yeah. So either um, in order to be a home owner, you would have to, if you're within the average salary range, right? Mm-hmm. And I've had discussions with people working for me on this specific issue. They would have to buy at such a big distance yeah. from the urban center that they would no longer be able to live there. To, to live where? To while work. wor- while yeah. working. Yeah. In yeah. the city, yeah. right? Oh, so oh, they would, oh. so yeah. they could only buy as an investment, but nobody then wants to rent the place, right? So, yeah. you, so you get this weird situation where the most fortunate people become the de facto homeowners of all the real estate, right? Yeah. Basically, in the city mm. center, mm. and so you get the a situation where the most vulnerable, who earn the lowest wages, right, are obliged to rent. 
and rent even then rented a great distance yeah. from their from their work so it yeah. becomes quite tense yeah so 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 from a resilience point of view you know it's it's funny because when you talk about disasters people often only mm. think about you know earthquakes or storms but actually if you look at the strategies that we have helped some of these cities develop affordable housing is part of that mm. right because there's an economic and social risk to cities right i mean to your point if it becomes completely unaffordable for somebody to work in the city center to the point that they make a decision that i just can't do take this job and i go elsewhere cities lose right because they're trying to create the opportunities for you know people to come and work in their in because of all of the benefits around that but the moment the perception is or the reality is that this city is too expensive for me to go and live in i'm going to move elsewhere and that has happened you know cities decline you look at detroit <laughs> went from when oh, yeah. <laughs> where i'm from uh, exactly so you, you thanks know. for that no really <laughs> why you didn't move to singapore <laughs> <laughs> yeah why am i still not in detroit <laughs> but 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 you know cities there is that is there there is a reality that cities face which is if they become too good or too reliant on one industry they have a risk yeah. where they if they lose that industry they or they lose their attractiveness because of congestion you know beijing had the same issue a lot of people stopped wanting to go to beijing because of the air pollution similarly delhi mm. faces the same issue where people you know in the expat rankings for example these are not cities that are attractive anymore because of the pollution and once people don't want to come to your city businesses are pretty savvy right i mean they'll be like why do i want to be located here if i'm not attracting the best talent pool here so th- so we we work with cities for them to rec- i mean not that cities don't recognize it but sometimes they don't articulate it enough or they don't think about it enough so affordable housing is one such issue where there is a tipping point where if the city becomes extremely expensive to live in you know businesses may at you know you in paris for example if you had a choice to go to nice or some other city where you could still draw the right kind of talent pool and be half as expensive or you know give them a quality of because end of the day you want to give your employees a good quality of life it's you want them to be able right, to right yeah right uh, so how do you sort of get cities to focus more on you know these kinds of issues from an economic point of view so that's what we try to do you know we we work with cities to say you've got a risk here which is not just a risk around disaster mm. uh, around a natural hazard but it's also around social resilience around economic resilience if you don't think of those issues you're not thinking long term uh, and part of it is you know bringing those kinds of notions into a city's policy framework that's the work we do under resilience but is this too much to lay on a city so the example of singapore it's also a nation state mm. yeah. right right yep. and it yeah. controls its borders and it has it can more or less fix its population yeah right because it is a nation state it doesn't have to let people in it's like a self-contained hoku system from <laughs> yeah. from china yeah. right yeah. um so they can optimize the system because they have those restrictions but in most countries it's all part of one big country yeah. well, so it yeah. has to be a national policy well isn't is it too much to ask of cities actually i have a i have a i have a related question like isn't it likely the national policies policies as the human population becomes more and more urbanized so for example if to take the example of France, right? Imagine a future where, because all of these pressures, we're now talking about a France where there's five major urban hubs, yeah. where 99% of the population lives, yeah. right? With potentially diverging interests and issues in each of these hubs, does a national government still make sense? Or is there mm-hmm. another form of government or, or, or of policy uh, shaping now you're a secessionist. <laughs> no, but now but you want to destroy the nation states, sir. Is the future a collective of nation states rather than a nation with urban centers in them? Yeah, I admit. <laughs> <laughs> You'd like a decisive answer <laughs> yes, in the sir. next 30 seconds. Okay, from a climate change perspective. Because I'm going to trade on this. <laughs> <laughs> from a climate change perspective, no. Because, uh, right? yeah, because yeah, we're yeah. talking about issues around climate change. Um nations have to make or you know if you look at the the paris agreement mm. nations have made commitments oh. um, and and to <laughs> well, some extent 
We and, used to. Well, <laughs> some did and some pulled out of it, but we won't Let's not there. name names, shall yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> it was the U.S. America. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, go ahead. No, no, that's fine. Um, so the from a climate change perspective, some of the um, commitments that are needed to address climate change long term depend on national action. You know, for example, energy policies have to be changed. Mm. You know, you're not talking at the scale that's that's needed. At, you know, you have to make some major bold moves, and that can only be done at a national level. Cities by themselves are not going to be able to deliver on the amount of GHG reduction that's required, um, on the kind of adaptation that's needed because of this. You know, sometimes you need to put in large. Um, you have to put in large funding into infrastructure, which sometimes cities aren't able to do it by themselves. Um, so there's a lot of reasons from a climate change angle where you need national. Uh, like I look, take an example of India. I was just looking at it yesterday. There is a major shift needed to move from thermal to other sources of energy, right? And that is needed if India has to meet its national uh, com mm. commitments towards uh, reducing their emissions or, you know, uh, in the next 30, 40 years, whatever. That can't be done at the city level. That has to be done at the national level. And even at the, the city-state, for example, the unit becomes too small. And the unit has to be much larger to aggregate the change that's required. For example, afforestation. You know, bringing back forests mm. as a way to become carbon sinks to reduce the amount of um, GHG emissions in the air can't be done at a city oh, stage yeah. level. That's it inherently to rural too. Well, exactly, and yeah. and that requires a larger perspective on you know what are the areas where you can actually get afforestation going, what are the areas with the, that lend themselves to more economic development, and that has to be looked at at a different scale, and I think that's where city, countries are important. You know, and energy generation tends to be rural as well, right? I mean, that's where power plants get put. Well, first of all, that's where the resources get extracted yep. to mm -hmm. make the energy. Uh, and that's where the energy plants tend to be, even if it was solar, right? You would put solar out yeah. in giant or rural nuclear. areas. Or nuclear. Well, you could put that big right in the middle of a city. Big proponent <laughs> of nuclear. Uh, actually, I am too. I, I, yeah. yeah, I think it's got to be part of the mix. But uh, then we'll just shoot the waste into the sun. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole field called, uh, what is it, climate engineering. I don't know if you've come across that. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. This is actually something I wanted to get into, okay. is, uh, this climate engineering. But let's well, come we, back to that. Let's wrap up cities because I, I want to really get into, so resilient cities. I mean, yeah. what all do they got to do? Because how do they individually respond to things like mass migration and global climate change and all these kinds of things? What so, so you know, one of the things that we tried to do um, was cities. It's so creating networks of cities. Yeah. Huh. So okay. saying, okay, there are, it's, these are problems that exist across a lot of cities. Um, you know, but some cities have addressed it better than others. And how do we share examples from one city to another? Because if you have every city trying to find a problem for every, or finding a solution for every problem they have, it's not easy. So mm. it's like one: how do you get cities to share across uh, each other so that they're bringing examples? You know, we solve this problem around uh, migration or we solve this or we've at least started to address the issue around migration let's help you so we cr we tried to create create a network and there's a lot more of these networks now globally recognizing that cities can learn from each other hmm. so that's one two getting multiple cities together to look at a problem so we've we did, we did that with several cities around you know earthquake risk or around migration actually um, or around um, slums or informal informality informal housing we, we brought in cities and experts and said you know Accra and Chennai and you know a couple of other cities and here are some of the best thinkers can you sit together and think about how do you solve this problem so again creating those opportunities by cities learning from each other um, the other thing major point that we try to emphasize is cities can't address each event that you know each risk that they have so how do they come up with solutions that 
provide multiple benefits. So there's a whole notion of co-benefits, multiple benefits, and we call it the resilient dividend. Okay. Yeah, where we're saying, if you're addressing flooding, for example, yeah. can you also come up with a solution that helps you with water security? Oh, you know, oh so, okay, okay. Yeah? So that's the co-benefit. So for example, in Chennai, you have floods one year, and the next year you may have a drought. And so we are saying, you know, you have a certain amount of water that falls on your system. Either the solution has been traditionally is to take that water and dump it to the ocean. Mm. And so we are saying, you know, can you come Salinating up with Salinating that water. Salinating that keeping water. keeping that and fresh water. <laughs> exactly. And then coming <laughs> yeah. up with a desal plant to then bring back the water. Yeah, right, right, right. right. So those are very unidimensional. You're solving one problem uh, which is around flooding. Yeah. Now, a solution that offers both flooding and what, and we did it traditionally, and more and more. Um, so, so Chennai actually had a major rainwater harvesting program. Hmm. One, of the, one of the earlier chief ministers, you know, because of a drought, she said, a rainwater harvesting structure in every house. And it did it. Oh, it did it pretty house. well. In every house. I mean, she came up with extremely huh. strong, uh, not only policy incentives, et cetera, but they did it. And then that became, you know, when you have, you're not losing your fresh water, right? So, so rainwater harvesting becomes a solution which captures rainfall locally, so that helps with flooding, mm -hmm. but also uh, re helps to regenerate the aquifer or reduce the demand on the system that helps with drought. Hmm. So we're trying to work with cities to say, how do you come up with these kinds of solutions that offer multiple benefits or a resilient dividend? and not doing something which is only addressing one challenge at a time because you don't have the resources, frankly, right. to address every problem that comes your way. Uh, so, to looking at, so, so innovating in that space um, and yeah. Well, and to move toward back toward climate change, but just yeah. one more thing about cities. So what, do they share ideas about how to build seawalls? <laughs> <laughs> well, the Dutch might have some ideas. Yeah, that. that's right. That's where we need the Dutch. <laughs> well, we're everywhere. Like if we look at New York City, uh, right? Yeah, New, New York, York City major flooding. So you guys actually have massive projects. Well, with the Dutch going on there to build walls. The Dutch through, are everywhere. Through, uh, New York, a system of a system of walls and 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 levees, making sure that when the city floods, it floods in the right places. It, is New York? It's yeah, really yeah. dealing with the Netherlands. Government yeah. to sort this out. Look into it. New York City, massive projects, huh. uh, massive so I, infrastructure. I can actually that speak to that wow. because. Oh, wow. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, not New York itself, but the Dutch uh, influence around the world uh, on water management. Uh, should God. I apologize right now? Oh, on uh, water management. No, I, okay. water management. I think this one's actually good. <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we work a lot with the Dutch. Um, uh, or as 100RC, we worked a lot with the Dutch um, because, you know, if you look at water management in Netherlands, it goes back 800 years. Yeah. You know, yes. you have water boards that were set up. Like I was there this summer and I went to um, Delft, Delft. And there's a water board set up that was set up in, I think, 1200 or 1300 something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the One Dutch the have been dealing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Newcomer. Dutch have been dealing with how to manage water for a very long time. And that is valuable for cities that are trying to understand how they address, you know, growing risks. Yeah. So we've been working with the Dutch actually running, we ran a global competition in Chennai, Samarang, Khulna. So these are Bangladesh, uh, India, uh, so Chennai in India, Samarang in Indonesia, and Khulna in Bangladesh, where the Dutch sponsored a competition to see, can you come up with innovative solutions? So this goes back to the earlier point I was making on uh, co-benefits. Yeah. So. The call put out um, was look at water as a problem or as a growing challenge in these cities because it's linked to climate adaptation. You, you know, these cities uh, and cities in a large part of the world uh, have to address challenges around water because the challenges are growing. Changing precipitation patterns means you can't rely on the amount of water that's falling. Sometimes there's too much falling and you have to manage it. Sometimes there's too little and you, you know, need to think about water security. So planning's a nightmare. Planning's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so, and water is central to all of this, um, um, you know, climate change. One of the key areas where climate change will affect cities is around the topic of water hmm. in a variety of formats, right? 
So the Dutch government said, okay, let's look at, um, you know, what kind of innovation can we bring in? So this was done through a competition mode. Hmm. Um, and essentially, there are some very interesting solutions that came up through this competition in all of these three cities, uh, where, again, the idea is, for example, in Chennai, Chennai has about 3,000 tanks, some of them old cultural tanks, what like, you know, associated with their temples, mm. some of them irrigation tanks, which go across the landscape. So one of the solutions came up is like these tanks, right, historically used to function as a water management system. So you could actually see how much water was in the tank that affected your behavior of how much you drew water. So it 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 also helped with flooding because it stored water. It helped with drought because it provided water for you to drink. Right. So there was a whole this community was built around these tanks. That has been lost as cities have put in modern infrastructure. You know, water pipes. Now you're you're relying more on water pipes than the tank that was in your neighborhood. Mm. So one of the ideas that has come back is, can you revive that? And if you revive that, you've got, you know, 3,000 tanks across the city that can help you both capture water and reduce your flood risk and provide you water when you have a drought. Hmm. Right. So the solution existed, but was not being, you know, was not highlighted. And through this competition, that is one that has come out. And this is not just in Chennai. I mean, this is other parts of um, India and other places as well. We're trying to restore some of these traditional systems for water management as a way to adapt to climate change. Yeah. Hmm. So, and going back to the Dutch, you know, so they have been going around um, to a lot of others. You know, in Vietnam, I've seen them. In India, I've seen them. In Indonesia, I've seen them. With that, trying to bring some of their best practices across the world and saying, you know, we can help you address some of these problems that are increasing because of climate change. Mm. And, and this, of course, climate change with ocean level rise is yeah. just an enormous issue. The Netherlands, most of the Netherlands is under sea level, right? Uh, all of it, I think. Yeah. All, all of it? Yeah. Okay, so. And, and, and we're still there, so. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and major, major cities, so like New York obviously flooded, but the hurricane came yes. in, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jakarta in Indonesia is sinking partly because of water table depletion, but also climate, uh, rather ocean level rise doesn't help with that. Yep. Um, I looked at an article in the New York Times, uh, just there was a new report that came out. So where else is highly vulnerable? Bangkok, I think. Bangkok. Uh, Bangkok most yeah. of it would be underwater. Miami in the U.S. Well, yeah. Bangkok is underwater Mostly. as soon as it rains. I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah, unbelievably challenging, I think. Yeah. So this, I mean. This ocean level rise, climate change is is a huge issue and potentially engineering our way out of this, mm -hmm. maybe with Dutch techniques, uh, is is the way to go. Well, but as long I, as so far you can engineer it. Right. Well, you build a higher wall? I don't know. Right, right. Sorry. I, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But um, I think I would, I would actually come back on that. It's not engineering your way out. Because I think huh. you can engineering, you can engineer some of it. Okay. But you can't engineer everything because the amount of money that's going to be required if you try to solve the problem to the nth degree, mm. not, no government has that much money. So mm. Some of it also is around how do you build the ability of communities to live with some level of flooding, for example. Oh, wow. Right? So it's huh. an, if, if you build that seawall or if you build a drain that only serves you for you know one day of a year, or maybe one day of five years. Oh. But the amount of money you're putting in to build that size drain, which is just sitting you know, as a white elephant, that's often not the, that, the solution. So the, the solution is often somewhere where there's an engineering, engineered part to it, which serves you for, you know, uh, well, the 30, most 364, cases. Exactly, yeah. 364 yeah. days of the year it functions. There's one day it may not function because you just can't afford to build for all of that yeah and in that one day what does the community do to say okay you know we have snow days in the u.s right oh <laughs> it's a flood day <laughs> it's a flood day or it's yeah. a, it's you know it's like it's a community response to saying everything cannot be engineered and now there's also a whole um, focus on what's called nature-based solutions what is it nature-based solutions oh okay yeah so this is essentially saying you know instead of a seawall for example you can have mangroves and mangroves will 
help to reduce the, um, you know, what does a seawall do at the end of the day? It's a protective measure where, you know, the wave comes, hits it, goes back. Right. And, and mangroves can do something similar. They can dissipate the energy of a wave. And they often have other benefits. They've got ecological benefits. You can have, you know, um, flora, fauna. I mean, you can have fish species growing. This sounds those. outrageous. But it's it's more and more. I want concrete. Uh, and then the risk of concrete failing is what we saw in uh, Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. When the when when you build a massive seawall and if it fails, you just exacerbated the problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, expanding on engineering a little bit, we were just yeah. starting to touch on it there. This is a question Nikolai were, and I were talking about. Um, so recently, some UN climate talks failed, mm -hmm. uh, went nowhere, mostly due to the U.S., but due to the other big polluters, too. Um, and likely nothing is due to happen for a couple of years until the next U.S. presidential election is over. Um, is it time to just give up on containing global emissions and focus on containing carbon in other ways <laughs> um, I, we're not gonna we're not gonna do it we're not gonna control ourselves uh, it, i think it, you know you'll never get me to say don't do it um, i can't you know i, I don't felt i was this close i know but <laughs> i i will never say don't do it despite <laughs> the challenges and the failures of climate talks you know um, i think we should definitely have a plan b ah uh, yeah yeah, a plan B. Uh, I, I think to some extent, adaptation is the plan B because the adaptation... So so in the climate debate, you've got the mitigation side, which is reducing emissions. Mm -hmm. Which so is that, what all the news is always about and all the meetings are always about. Yeah, it's like how right. do countries and how do countries reduce the amount of emissions that they're producing that are contributing to climate change? Yeah. So that's the mitigation side. How do you mitigate the risk? Adaptation comes from a perspective of, you know, you will have uh, more precipitation um, variability. Ah. You will have sea level rise. You will have, um, or you're, you're more likely to have, um, you know, so these kinds of challenges. And then how do you adapt to them? So mm -hmm. what is it you, that you as a system, you as a country, have to recognize that these risks are increasing? And that's where it, adaptation becomes more important. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's been recognized. So while, yes, the ambition is to keep um, GAG emissions to 1.5%, which was the latest IPCC report that came out, said we have only about a decade left uh, to make some drastic moves if we want to keep um, GAG emissions to 1.5% of yeah. where they were, I think, in 2020 or in 2020. Uh, whatever the baseline year is. And again, greenhouse gas emissions. Greenhouse gas emissions. And the inter, uh, International Panel on Climate uh, Change. Climate Change, yeah, yeah. IPCC. Yeah, yeah. 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 They're the, they the scientists who actually look at, you know, what are the trends? And <laughs> <laughs> but somebody has to do it, right? I mean, we need some evidence, some science, otherwise, you know, we're just talking on yeah, the air. Because otherwise we're stupid. But anyway. No, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, we're stupid if we don't listen to the scientists. But yeah, so the reports are dire. The reports are dire. Reports are saying countries have to do something. Countries are not doing it, as we just saw last week or yeah. two weeks back. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't keep trying. I mean, I think the point is we have to keep trying. Right. Um, and the reason part, some of, you know, it's easy to just put the blame on the U.S., but countries are still driven by, they have to create, economic opportunity for their citizens because end of the day mm. what is it that you all mm. three of us want is you know stability for our you know a good job good education for my kids and a lot of that has been built on systems that required energy which was being produced by thermal so you know it's not just about the governments uh, yes governments have to make commitments it's but people have to change their behavior um, if we want to see the reductions in GHG emissions that we need, whether whether that's saying, okay, I'm going to buy my electricity at home from um, alternative sources of energy. I'm no longer purchasing it from just the thermal, um, you know, energy that's generated in a thermal power plant that creates, or my... And thermal know, would be burning stuff. Thermal would be burning Coal, stuff. Coal. Exactly. Yeah. Oil, natural yeah. gas. Yeah. 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 
uh, or you know where are your investments you know all of us have investments mm. somewhere in you know, are these going towards supporting fossil fuel industries or not so i mean these are there are individual decisions here as well that we all have to take do i need to drive the car can i be like the dutch going on a bicycle everywhere <laughs> <laughs> yes you can <laughs> no <laughs> but individual decisions yeah. actually we've talked about this before that individual yeah. decisions that's totally the wrong emphasis well it's i think systemic. It, I, I think it's a cop that yeah i think it's i think it's hilarious to tell people that they should delete their emails because keeping data on servers uses more energy sure all right okay yeah 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 so, so we need these massive systemic changes yes well you need a, a change of incentives on the global stage yeah you don't but those aren't bound to change right like you just said people are looking to create high quality life for their people the energy demands are just well, going to go don't up change, then we're so all do done. we need to but do we need to just move on to these engineering proposals and that never gets any well, press that never gets proposals. talked and i don't mean to be giving up on stuff but did, we we well basically that look, would, we're not going to control ourselves listen you're going to give not. up on the poor and the underprivileged right well first yes but you know this basically means let's just sacrifice the the less fortunate of our society to climate change No, I'm talking about geoengineering projects which look, I haven't done a lot of investigation into this, but you know there's carbon sequestration, uh there's other techniques we can use to suck this stuff out, planting more trees, right? Yeah. Let's go on a crazy tree planting, you know. Escapade. It's not that crazy I, anymore, frankly, right? I mean, the amount of trees do serve Isn't that the plan B? Yeah. I well, I I mean, I would say that's still part of plan A, but there's um afforestation is not so there is, there is a whole uh, space in called climate engineering i think that's what you were referring to yeah um, right and i have to recount you know i had an opportunity to be in a conference at mit i think about a decade back and there were all these different climate scientists and engineers who were you know showing some of the climate engineering technologies that they had and things like shooting mirrors into the sky because it then awesome. reflects reflects yes. back reflects that's back that's what we need <laughs> <laughs> or or dumping lead in the oceans because that helps to absorb um green oh, carbon okay. yeah so the, so, so it, you know there are people thinking along those lines but i'm not sure we need to you know, and this you know, is the best they could come up with well this was 10 years back so i don't know what's happened in the last 10 years okay okay you know so these are the two that stood out for me you know imagine 60000 rockets going up into the yeah. air with mirrors so that they can reflect back well, or seeding clouds you know so the, yeah, yeah but i the reason i don't All of believe which require in, energy listen i'm going to have to push back on this the, yeah. the reason i don't believe in any of this is that of, it, well, of this this being what so any the of climate, these uh, geoengineering yeah. solutions ah, okay. um as a way to save ourselves ah, let's say okay. because it would just create more opportunities for the current system to continue to generate profit for its stakeholders right ah. it just creates more time it doesn't create other incentives if this the incentives aren't changed the direction of our development will not change we won't go on a different trajectory unless we have incentive to do so so even if we buy mm. ourselves time Are we just going to geoengineer ourselves into an extremely hostile planet at some point that still has our factories like pumping out our products and generating all of this pollution? It I don't think it's going to change anything. It's just going to m- guarantee that we survive as a species for a longer period of time under adverse <laughs> circumstances. But maybe I'm very pessimistic. Uh, uh, no, but you're right. I mean, I think that's why bioengineering or climate engineering is not mainstream yet, right? Right, because it's yeah. still mm, it's still okay. on the edges where the conversation is still around the climate the, the cop 25 in madrid where people are still trying to come up with some solutions um yeah, to cop address cop 25 being the climate um, co party something i can't remember is, what that acronym this, this is, is people getting good things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway this is governments getting together to negotiate climate yes. stuff yeah. yeah okay yeah so so every couple of years you know governments across the world and that's you know nearly 200 governments mm. get mm. together negotiate and agree on certain commitments towards what governments will do around for climate change um so it's not that people are not trying governments are not trying i think often the challenges um, and nick as you as you mentioned it's the ambition of 
you need to grow and provide jobs um, and there's a certain way of doing it which is you know it's path dependent right we 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 locked into certain mm. technologies we locked into certain systems it's not easy to change those um you know the amount of you know the the for example in india government has to provide power because it's such a huge deficit in the power sector they need to provide power because populations don't have it you know companies don't have it so they they need to provide that security and right now a lot of it is thermal now yes the government knows they need to cut down on emissions but they also need to provide power so it's a balancing act and saying okay we will continue the reliance on on thermal for our power generation because that's what we're doing today now 20 years down the road can we do something differently um and that's where a push for, towards renewable fuels is important and that again happens at the national level i mean i think that's where the national government is important yeah and and you do you have to you have to uh you have to push right incentive yeah. schemes aren't going to necessarily get us there but it's going to have to be a giant push you to get to, us off of one equilibrium yes you have yeah. to push towards onto a new the, equ- onto the next one agreed yeah. Yeah. yeah and in the meantime just invest in elon musk <laughs> and, and what are you talking up SpaceX. your book here what is this <laughs> no he wants us to become an interplanetary species right which is the the ultimate plan b oh yeah right because all of the other environments are so hospitable well they don't look good today they might look good tomorrow oh that's not engineering at all that's not geoengineering at all <laughs> all right i mean thank you very much Uh, oh you got you're welcome. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, been yes, an interesting you. conversation thinking Fantastic. about um urbanization of humanity and and how we make it livable, mm-hmm. right? Uh going forward uh both at the city level and the planetary level. So uh again, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Appreciate it both of you. Thanks. thanks. All right. So again, a, a fantastic interview. Very much thank you to Amit for uh coming in and uh talking to us to wrap up here of course um climate change it's a big honor oh, yeah. right guy so we've got to do we're our, all gonna die bill well that's true regardless so even more need thank god there's still good news there so we're gonna read good some news. good news from the good news network on twitter coastal dutch farm grows seaweed to filter pollution from their favorite beach and tackle climate change Bam! On Bam. target! Pretty sure that's not the only thing they're oh, growing. The Dutch. <laughs> Inmates sentenced to life in prison have commitment to spiritual transformation unlike any I have seen, according to someone. I'm not sure who that is. Well, I, I like that kind of spiritual commitment to something. And this another. one's really fantastic. Stunning Christmas light display inspires 13-year-old girl with autism to speak for the first time. Oh, okay, uh, now that is pure good news. Where's my presents? <laughs> yes. We were talking about incentives <laughs> in the interview, right? <laughs> yeah, so the incentives have to be there. So we've hit on everything. Yeah. All right, well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, and uh, we will be back soon. And, you know, uh, happy holidays are happy coming. Happy holidays. So happy holidays to everyone. And... Uh, Looking forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Talk soon.